Welcome back to The Hemingway List, the podcast where we do things the Hemingway. Well, we're talking about the first chapter of human bondage, of human bondage. We're we're talking about the first chapter of of human bondage, of of human bondage. Chapter one discussion, quite a moving opening chapter. What do you think of the prose style? And I'm already hooked. What will become of these characters? Um, I liked it. My two cents. I like the easy reading style, you know, nice, clear, direct prose. I, yeah, like using too fancy language to me. Yeah. If, unless you're really good at it and you can do it very tastefully, then I'm not keen. And to be honest, most of the time I see it, I don't think it's tastefully done. Like, um... James Joyce, for example, renowned for being a great writer, is a great writer, but there's just a little bit of a clash in taste, I think, between him and I, where I, I, don't get me wrong, I can't write what he writes, but sometimes I'm like, oh, I don't like the way you worded that, you you kind of see what you went for, but it's a bit contrived, it's a bit contrived, I think, it's very hard to be, to use Ah, uh, fancy language. I should have a better word than fancy for what I'm trying to say, but I think you know what I mean. Um, without it seeming contrived. And one thing they always talk about in these classics, it's something that keeps cropping up, and I only learned it from War and Peace, is when they talk about um, their... Oh, what's the word they use? It's a really specific and, and strange word. Oh, now it's going to slip my mind because I'm trying too hard to think of it. I'll think of it in a second. Um, anyway, it's a word that means like... Uh, frick. It's like sublime. It's it's like the ability to do something in a sublime way, but without it at all being contrived. So it seems like... It doesn't seem like a person tried to create something perfect. It just seems like this person has the innate ability to create perfection. Um, And, what's the bloody word? Lofty. Loftiness of their soul, I think, is what they kept saying. He had a loft... The loftiness of spirit or loftiness of soul. Um, you, You hear that a lot in War and Peace, the loftiness of their soul. That's what that refers to. It's like, that person is effortlessly sublime in their creation. In, in what they do, I should say. Um, really weird and specific phrase, loftiness of soul, right? And I looked it up and had to find what that means. Because it's like, yeah, I don't know. It, it's just a weird thing. Um, all right. I should actually read the comments here. Kutili said, as an MD myself, wait. Wait, I forgot to say something. I, I promised myself I would not forget to do this, so I won't forget to do this. Patreon.com slash The Hemingway List if you want to support this podcast. Thank you very much. All right. Kutili said, as an MD myself, I found the doctor's actions cruel and unjustified. He could have given the dying mother a few more minutes with her son. Her condition, obviously, wasn't a danger for the boy, and him being taken away after just a few moments clearly upset the mother and might have even aggravated her condition. Nevertheless, a strong start. I'm hooked as well. 
I've read that the novel is semi-autobiographical. Before making a name for himself in literature, Morham, Morham, Morgan, <laughs> studied medicine and was working as a physician for a year after graduating and also shortly before World War I, before being recruited into the British Secret Intelligence Service. Damn. Okay. This novel might get... If, if he's the little boy and we're going to see him grow up and go to World War I as a British secret agent, this book is going to go in a very different way than I thought. Um, this is how his surname is meant to be pronounced. Ah, excellent. Let's get this over with. Mr. Morm, we are supposed to talk about the mum. What? Mr. Morm, we are supposed to talk... Morm. Mr. Morm. Mr. Morm. Mr. Morm. Okay, Morm. Thank you very much for that. Much appreciated. All right. Uh, Fix the Blue said, it's interesting. Thanks for sh- sharing these facts. <laughs> Little typo there. Th- thanks for shatting these facts. Uh, I agree. Just let her spend some time with the boy. Very sad. Yeah. The sad thing to me is that she's there, uh, presumably bleeding out, you know, and they're just like this at that time. It was like, yep, nothing we can do. Sorry. Want to have a hug with your boy kind of thing. And oh, like just, it's so frustrating when someone dies of something that in modern medicine probably wouldn't have killed them. Um, yeah, that's a really sad thing, isn't it? And then the way it played out with the boy and him curling up in a ball. Jeez. I mean, really well done that he's... We don't know anything about these people yet, do we, really? And yet we feel so much for them already. Uh, Because he's kind of gone with... He's gone with something universal, hasn't he? Like a mother and son. That and, And the limit of their love for one another. And the nature of their relationship in that he doesn't know what's happening he just wants to have a little cuddle and she doesn't want him to know and oh my god yeah no you got me straight away Uh, and really well done on just playing on those heartstrings before we even really know who they are i am norwegian said i'm back i finally returned to the office and weirdly i feel like i have more time now there's something about sitting in the same room every day that compresses time and makes you feel rushed no matter how little you actually do (laughs) yeah damn well said Uh, of human bondage stood out to me from the list of books as one that i had to read when i checked out the wikipedia article all that time ago the plot didn't really sound interesting oh why would you do that norwegian why would you read the plot uh but that would be true of anna karenina brothers kramanov and i had no familiarity with those authors yeah a plot summary can often seem very dry uh, it doesn't take much of a plot to make a really good book. Uh, I had disca- decided to skip this book, but then I saw your poster at, uh, post over at A Year of War and Peace. I like the prose. It's simple and clear, straight to the point. I have no idea what the book is about, except that it's somewhat autobiographical. I know from the introduction that Morham was a doctor for a short while, but I assume he is the child and not this doctor. Welcome back. Altreat says welcome back as well. Yes, indeed. Welcome back. And I am Norwegian. Good to have you here. Always look forward to reading your comments. Um, yeah, I, I think he's the child as well and not the doctor. I think he might be right. Um, reminder, this is my... Oh, I just banged my mic- microphone. Um, reminder, if you don't already have this a copy of this book, you can read it for free at Project Gutenberg website. 
uh, or you should be able to find a free version on your e-readers store as well. Fix the Blue said, really strong first chapter. I wasn't sure what to expect from this book, but the chapter was short, well written, and has already drawn me in. Uh, Laura Weistich says, I've looked through the book. It seems to have many short chapters. It will be quite a different experience from the last few books we've read. I'm, that's good, you know, because I like short chapters because on my end, just it just helps me with my daily routine to do the podcast. Uh, you know, it takes... 10 to 15 minutes less per day if it's got a shorter chapter and you know that adds up when you do it every day i also am just without the podcast i've always gravitated more towards book with short chapters i find them more engaging um and what else was i gonna say oh man i keep having mental break blanks today um many short chapters Oh yeah, and many. The fact that there's many, because I am I am convinced this is going to be a really entertaining book. And so I kind of want this to go over a lot of days. I'd be happy to keep reading this through to the end of the year. You know, I'm only on chapter one, so I might end up taking that back. But if it, if it goes how I think it's going to go, I'm happy to live with this book for a little while. Amazing Larry says, I'm coming into this book knowing nothing about it. Good, perfect, me too. I had expected a book titled Of Human Bondage to start a little more slowly and densely, but this instead is very crisp and cuts straight to the action. True, yeah. I didn't expect any of these books to go straight in like that. Um, Halfway through the chapter, you know, I was very... I was in, you know. Mango Mondo says, Damn, the writing is as sharp as a knife. I am instantly absorbed into the drama. J.P. Guthrie says, my copy has a foreword from Morham in which he explains the development of his writing style. I spent much time on learning how to write and subjected myself to very tiresome training in the endeavor to improve my style. But these efforts I abandoned when my plays began to be produced and when I started to write again, it was with a different aim. I no longer sought a jeweled prose and a rich texture on unavailing attempts to achieve which I had formerly wasted much labour, I sought, on the contrary, plainness and simplicity. With so much that I wanted to say within reasonable limits, I felt that I could not afford to waste words, and I set out now with the notion of using only such as were necessary to make my meaning clear. I had no space for ornament. My experience in the theatre had taught me the value of succinctness. I worked unremittingly for two years. Yeah, and you know what? I'm not surprised to hear him say that because it shows. His writing is razor sharp. Uh, And if you were curious about the title, I did not know what to call my book and after looking about a great deal, hit upon Beauty from Ashes, a quotation from Isaiah, which which seemed to me apposite. But learning that this title had been recently used, I was obliged to search for another. I I chose finally the name of one of the books in Spinoza's Ethics and call my novel Of Human Bondage. I have a notion that I was once more lucky in finding that I could not use the first title I had thought of. A short, well-written first chapter, quite interested to read more, and can already sense the start of some interesting characters. Pomeridan says, very interesting. Thank you. His prose without ornament is refreshing and powerful. I'm seeing a lot of new names here. J.P. Guthrie, I don't think I've seen your name before, have I? 
Welcome to the podcast. Welcome to the subreddit. Pemerden, I don't think I've seen yours. Welcome. Amazing Larry, have I seen you before? I don't think so. Um, Fix the Blue, are you a newbie? Got a few newbies, it's great to see. Welcome to anyone who is new. And uh, yeah, don't be shy. Pemerden uh, says, many thanks, Andrew Lewis. Hey, that's me. For posting info about this discussion at A Year of War and Peace. I'm grateful that you introduced us to this book and look forward to tomorrow's podcast. Oh, thanks very much. Um, and yeah, hey, look, it does look like you're a newbie. I was hooked from page one. How does an author inspire the reader to care about fictional characters? As I age, such caring happens less frequently. Is more than empathy for an ailing woman who is treated poorly by her doctor. Morham's writing is fresh and direct. I was in the room with the mother. Yeah, I was too. You know what? I, I was the little boy for a minute there. I was the little boy curled up in a ball next to his mum for just a moment. And oh, what a heartbreaking thing. I also love that Morham does not give... My mum's still alive, by the way. Me saying that made you think that um, she's not. She's alive and well. <laughs> uh, I was in the room with the mother. I also love that Morham does not give many details in chapter one. I don't yet know the location, year, Philip's age, anything about the father, or much about their socio-economic status. Preconceived ideas and judgments, which exist, even though I try to be free of them, did not get in the way of connecting human to human. I couldn't pigeonhole Philip and his mother, so I was able to connect with them more deeply. I suspect that connection will remain as I learn more. Oh, wow. Hey, um, Pemerden, good comment. Well said. Um, and yeah, you touched on a bit what I was saying before about um, how he connected us so quickly with these characters and made us care for them. And you, I like what you've noticed here saying, Morham does not give many details in Chapter 1. We don't know the location, year, their age, anything about the father. We don't know anything about the characters, really. We don't know the mother, her looks. You know, not the physical description means much in a novel, but we don't know. We don't know her personality at all. We don't know her situation. Um, and same could be said about just about any other character. And we don't. I we don't even really know what the room they were in looks like. Um, and it's a really cool thing when they when that's done well because we just automatically project the most real feeling thing with our imagination into that empty space that he's left for us to fill. And when an author allows you to just create it yourself, if it doesn't matter, or if we'll find out later. We will project into that space automatically and subconsciously just whatever feels the most real. And that's what makes you feel like you're there. That's what makes it feel real is that it's mostly your own creation. It's like in Inception, if you've ever seen Inception, when um, the architects of the dreams, Leo DiCaprio is trying to teach... Um, oh, what's her name? Juno. <laughs> um the the new apprentice he's trying to teach the new apprentice how to create a dreamscape that the dreamer will be in but they he wants them to think that they're awake so they're creating an imaginary setting um and she says how could you possibly put enough detail into the setting that the dreamer will think it's real like you'd have to populate all the details of the city and he says no if you something along the lines of 
if you put in too much detail, it will clash with what he expects to see. So if you leave it blank, relatively blank, they will project their own expectations into the space. Um, I paraphrased that really poorly. <laughs> That's not what is said in the Hollywood film, but it's something along those lines. And uh, yeah, it's true in fiction. It's true. It's a good lesson for writers as well, is sometimes less description feels more real. Swim said the mumma fishy says, uh, I found the prose to be crisp and clean, which apparently he was known for. As a prose stylist, this is from a link attached below from irishtimes.com. As a prose stylist, Morham had few equals among his contemporaries. He took enormous trouble over his work, and even at the height of his fame, prior to publication, submitted what he had written to the scrutiny of Edward Marsh, who was renowned for meticulousness in matters of grammar. Desmond McCarthy wrote that Morham has a sense of what is widely interesting because, like Maupassant, he is as much a man of the world as he is an artist, adding that at his best he can tell a story as well as any man alive or dead. And Raymond Chandler himself, a masterly narrator, rightly observed of Morham, his plots are cool and deadly and his timing is absolutely flawless. Oh, what praise, man. I wish someone would say that about me. <laughs> um, I can see already from these compliments and from chapter one why Hemingway has put this on the list and its influence on Hemingway. It's very much that World War One, or post-World War One, I, I should say, era of writing, you know, early 20s, um, when this came into fashion and was very much popularised by your Fitzgeralds and your Hemingways, etc., Simply Productive says, A very captivating first chapter. I have to admit I'm very impressed. What a great way to start out. I agree with everyone else. The writing is crisp and clear. I appreciate that. Really glad to be back in the swing of things with you all. It'll be great to get another classic under my belt. Oh yeah, hear here to that. Uh, the Big Boss. Hello, The Big Boss. Um, I don't think I've seen your name here before too, so welcome. I've read this a year and a half ago. Been voting for it since. Hope you guys enjoy it. Might reread it as this goes along. Please do. Our treat says, I'm in the middle of another book. That book is totally engrossing and has a totally different style. So this was kind of jarring and a little more meh than I expected by comparison. I suppose the writing style is direct, quote unquote, but it also comes off as a little flat and colorless. Again, probably influenced by contrasting against the book I am reading. It could definitely grow on me though. I'm kind of expecting nothing good for these characters. It all seems rather ominous. I can see what you mean with flat and colourless. It's when you do that's the risk you run when you go completely stark and, and direct um, prose is that you do leave a lot up to the imagination of the reader and you don't wow them as often with visuals. Um, so you really have to absorb them into the characters and what they're up to. You know, I do love a good, you know, beautiful off-the-cuff description of the scenery or the setting or the person or the situation or whatever. Um, and when they really do that well, you go, ooh, that guy's got away with words. Um, and so, yeah, I guess that was the one thing lacking, but I would take crisp and direct over overly flowerful, overly colourful um, language. And I think we'll still, there's still a lot of book left for, for uh, Morham to wow us with some beautiful language. All right, that's a very long introduction because I suppose this is what happens. 
uh, I suppose this is what happens on the first episode, isn't it, of a new book, uh, if everyone wants to chime in. So this podcast is a lot longer than the following ones will be, I assure you. The typical episode will probably only go for something like 15 minutes or 20 minutes. Or even maybe even less because of how short these chapters are. All right, let's read chapter two. Here we go. It was a week later. Philip was sitting on the floor in the drawing room at Miss Watkins house in Onslow Gardens. He was an only child and used, and used to amusing himself. The room was filled with massive furniture and on each of the sofas were three big cushions. There was a cushion too in each armchair. All these had he had taken and with the help of the gilt rout chairs, light and easy to move, had made an elaborate cave in which he could hide himself from the Red Indians who were lurking behind the curtains. He put his ear to the floor and listened to the herd of buffaloes that raced across the prairie. Presently, hearing the door open, he held his breath so that he might not be discovered, but a violent hand pulled away the chair and the cushions fell down. You naughty boy! Miss Watkin will be cross with you. Hello, Emma, he said. The nurse bent down and kissed him, then began to shake out the cushions and put them back in their places. Am I to come home? he asked. Yes, I've come to fetch you. You've got a new dress on. It was in 1885, and she wore a bustle. Her gown was of black velvet, with tight sleeves and sloping shoulders, and the skirt had three large flounces. She wore a black bonnet with velvet strings. She hesitated. The question she had expected did not come, and so she could not give the answer she had prepared. Aren't you going to ask your mamma ask aren't you going to ask how your mamma is? she said at length. Oh, I forgot, how is mamma? Now she was ready. Your mamma is quite well and happy. Oh, I am glad. Your mamma's gone away, you won't ever see her any more. Philip did not know what she meant. Why not? Your mamma's in heaven. She began to cry, and Philip, though he did not quite understand, cried too. Emma was a tall, big-boned woman with fair hair and large features. She came from Devonshire, and notwithstanding her many years of service in London, had never lost the breadth of her accent. Her tears increased her emotion, and she pressed the little boy to her heart. She felt vaguely the pity of that child deprived of the only love in the world that is quite unselfish, it seemed dreadful that he must be handed over to strangers, but in a little while she pulled herself together. Your Uncle William is waiting to see you. She said, Go and say goodbye to Miss Watkin, and we'll go home. I don't want to say goodbye, he answered, instinctively anxious to hide his tears. Very well, run upstairs and get your hat. He fetched it, and when he came down, Emma was waiting for him in the hall, he heard the sound of voices in the study behind the dining room. He paused. He knew that Miss Watkin and her sister were talking to friends, and it seemed to him he was nine he was nine years old, that if he went in they would be sorry for him. I think I'll go and say goodbye to Miss Watkin. I think you'd better, said Emma. Go in and tell them I'm coming, he said. He wished to make the most of this opportunity. Emma knocked at the door and walked in. He heard her speak. Master Philip wants to say goodbye to you, miss. There was a sudden hush of conversation, and Philip limped in. 
Henrietta Watkin was a stout woman with a red face and dyed hair. In those days, to dye the hair excited comment, and Philip had heard much gossip at home when his godmother's changed colour. She lived with an elder sister, who had resigned herself contentedly to old age. Two ladies, whom Philip did not know, were calling, excuse me, <clears throat> and they looked at him curiously. My poor child, said Miss Watkin, opening her arms. She began to cry. Philip understood now why she had not been in the luncheon and why she wore a black dress. She could not speak. I've got to go home, said Philip at last. He disengaged himself from Miss Watkins' arms and she kissed him again. Then he went to her sister and bade her goodbye too. One of the strange ladies asked if she might kiss him and he gravely gave her permission. Though crying, he keenly enjoyed the sensation he was causing. He would have been glad to stay a little longer to be made much of, but felt they expected him to go, so he said that Emma was waiting for him. He went out of the room. Emma had gone downstairs to speak with a friend in the basement, and he waited for her on the landing. He heard Henrietta Watkins' voice. His mother was my greatest friend. I can't bear to think that she's dead. You oughtn't to have gone to the funeral, Henrietta, said her sister. I knew it would upset you. Then one of the strangers spoke. Poor little boy, it's dreadful to think him quite alone in the world. I see he limps. Yes, he's got a club foot. It was such a grief to his mother. Then Emma came back. They called her handsome, and she told the driver where to go. All right, there we go. There's another chapter for you. Chapter two. Have your say over at the subreddit. Thank you very much for listening, and I'll see you tomorrow.